0: In my head, you have held me in your arms. In my head, I've been witness to your charms a thousand times. You have sung me a love song in my head. Hello, and you are very welcome to uh, the latest episode of The Attic Sessions. And today we have a very special focus on fiction, and we're delighted to be joined by two leading practitioners in the field, Tanya Farrelly and Mary Morrissey. Thanks very much for coming along. Tanya has two books to date a collection of short stories called When Black Dogs Sing, which was published by Arlen House in 2016, and a novel titled The Girl Behind the Lens, which was published by HarperCollins also in 2016. She's been shortlisted for the Francis McManus and Hennessy Awards. And a third book is due out in April 2018. Um, we'll talk about that in, in, in a little mm-hmm. while. Mary Morrissey's most recent publication is a short story collection called Prosperity Drive, which was published by Jonathan Cape, also in 2016. And a previous collection of short stories, Lazy Eye, appeared in 1993. And she's also published three novels, Mother of Pearl, the Pretender, and The Rising of Bella Casey. She's won many prestigious awards for her writing, including a Hennessy Award and a Lannan Literary Foundation Award. So I always like to ask guests how this whole adventure started, how you got into writing. So, and Tanya, Summer,
1: I read when I was doing my extensive yeah. research, Uh, that you had been writing stories since childhood. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, Yeah, I I think I've been writing since I was probably about five years old. I always loved writing stories, and I've always been an avid reader, so I would see my writing as an extension of reading, really. Um, I always loved English at school. I mean, if the homework was to to write an essay or to write a short story, that wasn't homework for me. That was something to enjoy, you know. And were the stories sort of, were you rewriting stuff in
0: things that you'd read or were they no no different? original
1: stories yeah yeah because I,
0: I was the fierce woman for rewriting the endings of things okay and I, I was putting improving myself, them well no I was putting <laughs> myself into them but I was always like the helpful friend or the okay. person that would put them right <laughs> <Yeah>. rather than <laughs> a, anything else um, so keeping that going because a lot of us have these sort of mm. instincts when we're kids and then they kind of get beaten out of us right in a way like, how did, how did you manage to keep going with the writing?
1: I, well, I suppose I, I didn't keep it going all through those years. Um, I mean, there, there was probably a number of years when I didn't write, uh, but certainly I was always interested in it and, and I always read. And, you know, my school holidays, I'd come out with big bundles of books in the library. And, you know, my mother always bought me a lot of books. Um, she wasn't particularly a reader herself, but because she knew how much I loved reading, she, she fed that habit, if you like. Um, so I suppose I got serious about writing then when I was, uh, about 20 or 21 mm-hmm. I started looking around and asking in the local library if there was maybe a writer's group that I could join and I grew up in Clondoc and there wasn't a whole lot going on then in Klondoken. and um, I was then told that there was a writer's group in Tala Library um, which I joined and I spent five years as part of that group mm-hmm. um, and that really I suppose it taught me a lot um, and yeah I, I just kept going ever since that actually mm-hmm. um, there was a bit of an interruption because I went to university quite late to do my degree. I was 23 when I actually went back I was working full-time I studied at night and um, that did interfere with my writing sure. Um, I'd kind of been doing really well like say when I was 23 i had been shortlisted for the Francis McManus and the Hennessy and a few other competitions so I, I was really on track mm. at that stage but then I started doing an English degree at night and I decided okay if I want to get good results out of this degree something's got to give yeah. and, and then I followed that up with a masters so I actually stopped writing for four years and um, that was hard you mm. know because I had all these ideas and things that I wanted to do but I didn't have the time to do them because mm-hmm. of working full-time mm-hmm. and studying mm-hmm. at night mm-hmm. so by the time I finished the master's then I decided okay now is the time I'm not going to let anything else interfere with my writing and mm-hmm. I've been writing ever since oh.
2: yeah
0: and Mary I think you're did you come to it through journalism am I right in
2: thinking I came through it through journalism but in a kind of a roundabout way I mean unlike Tanya I was a kind of a journeyman writer when I was a child I wrote and somebody asked me to produce something but otherwise I didn't have I didn't have an ambition to write or I didn't it wasn't really part of I suppose the culture that I grew up in to to have an ambition to be a writer it just wasn't you know, we had, from my family, we had ambitions to be primary school teachers or civil servants, you know. Sensible things. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Mentionable jobs, I think they're known as. Exactly. So, um, but I was interested in, in journalism and um, the year I left school, I did a correspondence course in journalism, which now just sounds so kind of old-fashioned that, you know, you used to get these, you know, assignments through the post in a big brown envelope and you did all of your assignments and then you put them back in a brown envelope and sent them off and then you would get what I thought were very very paltry remarks from your tutor and my tutor had um you'll probably be interested in this because you're looking looking at it from the other side well you're
0: describing my current job which (laughs) is with the Open University but anyway
2: and I'm presuming it was a man although I don't know he his initials were A or E and, you know, he'd give you a couple of lines and he was never as enthusiastic as I thought he should be about my writing, my journalism. But um, the final assignment in the course was to write a short story. And because I was sort of biddable, you know, yeah. I just thought, OK, right, I'll, do I'll write one. And, you know, lo and behold, I mean... It produced a response from E, which was like gushing. There was half a page saying, you know, is this the first thing you've written? If so, it's very interesting. Have you ever thought about being a writer? And, you know, to be truthful, I hadn't. So he planted that. He, I'm presuming, planted that idea. And it started from... That.
0: So, did you continue with journalism while writing on the side?
2: Or? I, I went and studied journalism yeah. then in uh, in Rathmines, yeah. and um, I wrote away. I wrote fiction, kind of on the side, and a bit like Tanya, you know. I started off really well, you know, and won something in Listowel and had a few stories published and new, yeah. new, I- young Irish yeah. writing and. Yeah. Yeah. And then, kind of the job, I got a job and the job took over and I was on a trip to Australia when I was about 24 and I let the writing slide a bit and I thought really, you know, I had one of those, you know, what am I going to do with my life moments and I thought, well, you know, if you're going to be a writer, you'd really want to stop treating it like some like little hobby and mm. apply yourself mm. to it. Mm. So then I started applying myself to it and then didn't have anything published for about eight years, you know, I'm thinking, God, when I cared less, mm. it worked, you know. So that was my sort of trajectory into it.
0: Um, and I know in, Tanya, actually, like me, has a, a PhD in creator writing. You teach... Uh, postgraduate creative writing in in UCC mm-hmm. so I'm wondering about that academic experience both as as a, as a student and a, a, as a teacher has it created a more controlled environment if you like for creative writers um, I'm thinking of something Martin Malone said to us the other week about how as a an editor of a magazine he can see you know there's a lot of really good quality writing there that is clearly co- you know the benefit of people doing mm. courses mm-hmm. um is it institutionalizing writing at all do you think
2: well i have you know i i do have reservations mm. about creative writing in the academic setting um i mean i suppose partly because i don't have an academic background and um uh, I just wonder about, you know, putting creative writers through that kind of yeah. academic ringer, just the system, you know, grading, yeah. creativity, like, how do you do that? And You wrote you a know.
0: fabulous essay on that, In there was a, a book of papers on teaching creative writing yes. in, in the classroom, and you have an amazing essay on just the oddness of having to put a numerical value to somebody's piece of creative work.
2: Yes, and, you know, I mean, there is... Uh, in certainly in the U.S., there's a continuing debate where creative writing has been m- much longer part of the university setup. You know that, you know, Is there? Can you recognize somebody who's been through the MFA ringer and come out yeah. the other end? And is there is there such a thing as like a successful workshop story which yeah. might necessarily appeal outside of that yeah. setting? Yeah. And I mean, I think there. These are all dangers. On the other hand, you know, like referring back to my eight years where I got nothing published, even though I was sending stuff off, you know, I think that this is what the MA here does. It gives you time out. It gives you concentrated attention you know you've got like two or three faculty members whose job it is to look at your writing and try and improve it and you know broaden your horizons mm. if that's what you need mm. and you know to stop you making the same mistakes over and over you know that sense of when you're a young writer and you're sending your work out into the world and first of all you have to get over that terrible self-loathing about it yeah. um, and then it comes back, and you've no idea why it's coming back. Um, and I've I found after that eight years, or looking back on that eight years now, I think I can see now what was yeah. what I was doing wrong. And all it needed was for somebody to take me aside and say, perhaps if you did this, or you know. Yeah. And when when I was at that stage, I was kind of quite secretive about my writing. And um, it's interesting because I think in the world of journalism, um, at that stage, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, people within journalism, you know, didn't welcome the creative writer. You know, the creative writer was considered like a bit airy-fairy and, you know, um, even though now a a great deal of writing comes from people with that background. Um, But, you know, at that stage, there was that kind of macho thing that the real writing was journalism, you know, and um, so, you know, I I wasn't going around the place declaring I was a writer, you know, because in the world I found myself in, that wasn't like a high status thing, you know, so it, it had the... It had the quality of being like a little secret vice that you nursed at home, but you didn't tell anybody about. Which um, is the,
0: the story they tell about Jane Austen sitting, in sh- uh, insisting that a door w- should be kept squeaky in her house because she was the room where she would write, but she kept that quiet. So she'd <coughs> have her embroidery over her mm-hmm. her manuscript, mm-hmm. and she could hear somebody coming in, so she could qu- probably put it away. So like you know, hiding your writing is a yes you know, is a tradition. Can I ask Tanya whether, mm. because I, my PhD made me very yeah. self-conscious.
1: I okay, think. I, I think yeah just you know Mary was talking there about the the M A or the M F A in creative writing and I didn't do my masters in creative writing um I did it in twentieth century Irish writing and cultural theory um and I actually regret now that I didn't do an M A in creative writing at the time um when I'd kind of asked for advice from professors and that they said to me well you're better off doing an M A in something that you can get a job in you know so that wasn't necessarily doing an M mm-hmm. A in creative mm-hmm. writing mm-hmm. um so you know I went straight from that MA into a PhD in creative writing. So I was never in a classroom yeah. scenario as yeah. regards my oh, writing, okay. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. because my PhD was distance. I mean, you so know, there it, was, it was all my own work. Yeah, yeah there were no yeah. workshops, uh, there were no okay. classes. Yeah. It was, you know, the PhD consisted of me writing a novel and doing a dissertation yeah. and emailing my work um, to my supervisor and him getting back to me and making yeah. suggestions and yeah. stuff like that. So almost not a million
0: miles away from the editor yeah writer relationship. yeah
1: so I mean definitely what it did for me uh, was it gave me the discipline it, it gave me the kick on the ass to write the novel and get it done yeah. So I think definitely it's motivational and I understand what you're saying about, isn't it a bit odd doing creative writing in an academic setting where somebody's grading writing or whatever? But at the same time, isn't it a wonderful thing to have the opportunity to study creative mm. writing and, and do that as your subject? Sure. You know, because I when I finished my master's, um, I had the idea that I would love to do a PhD, but I wasn't willing to spend another three years studying somebody else's work. Yeah. I just mm-hmm. wanted to do my own work. Yeah. So I yeah. think it's a brilliant opportunity. And I think another thing about
2: the creative writing to, to, to be a kind of a devil's advocate um, is that you know nobody questions musicians going mm. to the College of Music and doing an apprenticeship or, a visual or artist. an artist yep. going yep. to the it's College true. of mm-hmm. Art. Absolutely. It's not considered as some kind of, you know, strange yeah. ritual yeah. that's going to somehow interfere with the art. In fact, certainly, you know, Art College is seen as a way of opening people yeah. right up, you know, mm-hmm. to yeah. Um, yeah. To bigger and better things. Yeah, that's no, so um, true. So true. But it still hangs over creative writing that notion. I mean, I I, I think of it really more as serving an apprenticeship, mm, doing an apprenticeship sure, like yeah. under yeah. Uh, like a master. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And yeah. you know that that I think it's more satisfying to think of it that way yeah. than you know a kind of an academic yeah, course. Sure. Sure.
0: Now, now both of you write both types of fiction you both write short stories and novels mm-hmm. so i'm just curious about the different disciplines and mental states required for that because again having just sort of attempted my first mm. novel it, it feels like running a marathon <laughs> without necessarily having the muscles to do so yeah. um as opposed to the short story that has that tighter focus mm. Can you do both at the same time or are they very different things?
1: Well, I certainly don't do both at the same time because when I'm focused on something, I really focus with tunnel vision and I, I can't work on something else. You know, I just have to stick with it. Um, I'm glad that I started with short stories, definitely. And I love writing short stories and certainly I'll never stop that. After this new novel that I'm working on is done, I'm going to write another collection of short stories. That's the plan. Um, but... As regards talking about apprenticeships there, writing short stories, I think, is a fabulous apprenticeship for writing the novel. Because as you say, there's nothing superfluous or there shouldn't be anything superfluous in a short story. So your writing is so good and tight that I think then when it comes to writing a novel, you'll probably proceed with that same style hopefully mm-hmm. and there won't be any padding in mm-hmm. the novel there won't be anything there that shouldn't be there mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um so it's great for honing your writing skills mm-hmm. and can you do both at the same time short stories and the novel
0: yeah. like m- um, might you have both on the go
1: no no like I say I, I focus on on one thing at a time you know so I've spent the last you know year working on the novel that I'm currently doing and I haven't really been writing short stories mm-hmm. yeah
0: and and Mary what about your experience because there was an early collection of short stories then three novels and then another collection of short stories
2: yes and what a joy it was to go back to the short story yeah I'm, I'm looking outside. forward to it yes, <laughs> yeah. it's like a treat after the kind of I I, I compared writing a novel with going down the mines you know Mm. so you disappear down and you're there (laughs) shoveling away for you know several years you know and uh, you know the short story has that wonderful kind of sense of well maybe not instant gratification Mm. but you know the light at the end of the tunnel yeah. is not the oncoming, you know, failure of the novel. You know, because they can take um,
0: a, a very long time. I, I remember hearing Claire Keegan say that you know it could take seven or eight months mm. to just sort of work on one one short story, and not even the kind of the very long ones that she can do, but mm. that she just chips away and chips away and chips away and chips away over months.
2: So you know they're not instant. Mm. No, they're not instant. But you know you can you can see the end or the destination I think of a short story whereas often with a novel you can't or else it maybe changes halfway through or you know something happens in the writing that that changes it Um, and you know it just it's the long trajectory of the novel Mm -hmm. as opposed to you know the shorter trajectory of the of the short story I mean I found the transition to writing a novel so mm. painful and difficult because I was so used to writing short mm. I thought I'll never sustain something
1: yeah. over 200
2: mm. pages in fact when I began writing um my first unpublished unfinished novel you know I used to go into bookshops and count the number of pages and words in novels thinking mm. could I actually write eighty thousand words yeah. I don't think so you know um so um that, that has affected the way I write uh, like a first draft of a novel very roughly, really to see, is there enough mileage in it yeah. mm-hmm. to get me to yeah. the end of a, of a novel? Yeah. You
0: know? yeah. Now, the, you've tried uh, both contemporary fiction, historic fiction. What leads you to the subject matter that you, you focus on?
2: Well, I suppose with the novels, they're all, um, I suppose they're vaguely journalistic in that they're all based on real incidents, you know, Um, and that, in a way, gives you a kind of a framework for the novel. It's almost like the story is there already. Mm. Now, you might not tell it in exactly the same way, but, you know, it is is a kind of a comfort blanket Mm. in a way. Um, and I th- always think of the short story as being, like, reports from the contemporary world. Although I have recently tried a few sort of historical short stories, just to sort of see does it work. But yeah. I feel that for me, the the short story is about now. Yeah. Um, the not. Uh, I mean, I didn't kind of set out to be a historical novel, but the stories that I was interested just happened to be historical. So. Yeah. And that's where I am.
0: And also a sort of a sense of sort of reclaiming lost voices in a way, because I'm thinking in particular of the rising of Bella Casey, mm. which talks about Shona Casey's sister and 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 a very tragic life, mm. essentially. But she was sort of lost behind the big figure of of her brother in her brother's plays. so mm. So did you have a sense with that of wanting to sort of reclaim
2: a lost history? Um yes and no although the like the 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 original you know impulse to write her story um was i i, I read an academic book just that mentioned her in passing yeah. and and just talked about this terrible kind of um downward spiral of her life of a very promising start so a kind of um rags to riches in reverse sort of story And I remember that kind of strange, tingling sensation you get when you think, oh, this is mine, you know. And um, it was only when I then did more research, I thought, gosh, she really has been written out, Mm. you know. And it was a way into her story to, I mean, originally I had intended it to be her autobiography, you know. But one of the problems about that was that, you know, people don't know a great deal about O'Casey's life and he's not as much in the popular imagination as he might have been once. Mm. So I had to think of some framework in order to tell the story and yeah. that that actually meant that Sean O'Casey had to be in the book, although yeah. I really didn't want him to be in the book to start mm, off mm, with.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. Um, you also mm. have a sort of a, a, a contrasting approach in, in what you write about in terms of your long fiction mm-hmm. and your short fiction. Yeah. Um, and it's the kind of psychological thriller area in, in, in the long fiction. How
1: did that kind of fork? It was completely unintentional. Yeah, I never set out to write a crime novel. Um I mean I'm a literary fiction writer, that's what my short stories are, and and that's what my novel is, I dare say as well. You know, and I, I kind of I was aware then that it was it was taking that kind of turn. Um I love crime fiction, I love reading crime yeah. fiction. Um I did a workshop down in Listowel Writers Week with Declan Hughes a few years oh, ago, right. um, and maybe I have him to blame actually. <laughs> Declan is wonderful, and he has so much enthusiasm and passion yes. for his subject. Yeah. and you know he introduced us to the work of Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and all of that type of thing, which I haven't hadn't read before. You know, and I went away thinking, oh, sounds really interesting. I should start reading those type of books, and and read Declan's books as well, which I absolutely loved. Um, and Declan himself is a literary writer, you know. I mean he was originally he was a playwright and he's a a really beautiful writer um, the wrong kind of blood is the first in his crime series and wasn't he part of the rough magic yeah um, that's right yeah, yeah yeah that's right um, so and he's an extremely literary writer you know and um, so like I say I never set out to write um, a crime novel yeah. I didn't think it was a crime novel Um I sent it into Inkwell the first three chapters um for some analysis to Vanessa O'Loughlin a few years back with the first draft and um, I spoke to Vanessa for two hours on the phone after that you know giving me feedback feedback and advice and whatever and uh, one of the first things she said was you know she mentioned that it was a crime novel and I said whoa 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 hang on a second it's not a crime novel (laughs) and she said yes it is she said there's a body on page one and I said but does that necessarily make it a crime novel you know because I was thinking of all novels that have crimes in them but which are not crime novels Uh, I actually did my PhD thesis on this funny enough Mm -hmm. and you know I I wrote about um, the book of evidence by John Banville for example and the butcher by by Pat McCabe you know which are not crime novels but have these Mm. heinous crimes in them them. you know so I was kind of thinking the same thing that even though there is a crime in my book it's not a crime novel. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Killer Reads, the imprint of Harper Collins, um, opened up for submissions. And I remember seeing this on Twitter, and I said to David, "Oh, I wonder should I send it in?" I thought it's not a crime novel, but look, why not? You know. And they took it on, so it was published and marketed as a crime novel. Um, and I had mixed feelings about that actually, because um, I thought I was worried. In fact, because. I thought, okay, it's it's a brilliant thing to get published as a crime writer because crime is the best-selling genre, so mm. it's mm. certainly not going mm. to do sales any harm, mm. and it hasn't. Uh, the sales have been really good for it um, and but the other thing that concerned me was the fact that it was being marketed to a crime readership yeah you know and obviously you have hardcore crime fans Mm. that are expecting wham bam on every page keep it coming yeah and and i thought well my book's not really like that it's it's much more evenly paced and they may not like it you know um, and yeah I mean that has been quite mixed you know it's it's mostly been positive yeah. um, but what I found rather interesting because I was always afraid I was going to fall between two stools between the literary fiction and the crime with this book um, The Girl Behind the Lens and so um, feedback that I got back you know a lot of people who love crime loved it some of them thought it was a bit slow and then people who like literary fiction said, "Wow, it was so pacey and so <laughs> exciting!" And I, oh, okay, so, so it, it, it like was the interesting, best you know? Yeah, then, yeah, then, exactly. Then. Yeah, like you know, people who like crimes sort or of said it was slow-burning hmm. and you know, yeah. whatever. But yeah, literary yeah. fiction fans found it really fast.
0: Yeah, yeah. But but it, but it's it's interesting, you know, how much that sort of touches on on a lot of different things to do with publishing. Um, you know, snobbery about. Genre, mm. Oh, yeah. Sure. Well, you know, it's what people like and buy, mm. but also the industrial nature of, of publishing. Mm-hmm. It is about a product and marketing a market product it and, to. and yeah, what's the, yeah. the, the
1: best way of doing that. Yeah. Um, as well as that, I, I don't ever want to be pigeonholed as a writer into any genre. I mean, literary fiction is a genre in itself, I suppose yeah, now, yeah. you know, but I want to have fun with writing. I love writing. I would love to write a Gothic novel. You know, I love gothic. I don't know if I ever will. But who knows? Watch the space. Yeah. (laughs) But why not have fun with it and not just confine yourself to one area and one type of writing? I want to experiment and explore everything that I can as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Now, going back to your most recent book, because
0: again, in my extensive research, um, I came across an interview you did with Valerie, sir, a couple of years ago Mm. about um, setting and sense of place. And how in your earlier writing, you were less interested in having a very sort of specific locale. But this latest collection of short stories is so specific a locale, they all take place on the one street. Mm, mm. Which might not be a million miles away from the type of street you grew up in, Mm -hmm. in Rathgar. Yes.
2: So how has that shift occurred, do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe when I started out, I perhaps um, got confused or was mistaken about the notion of being universal and confusing the local with the parochial. And uh, in my first book of short stories, um, which is set in many ways on Prosperity Drive as well, except that there's no... there's no... um, all the place names have been removed mm. and it could be any mm. suburb yeah. anywhere yeah. and i i wanted it to be like that because i thought um i thought i don't want to use the real place names and if i make up place names they just always sounded really irishy and sort of wrong and i thought i'll just like just make it anonymous completely and i do think that partly it was a kind of a cultural cringe you know this idea that you know where I came from wasn't authentic enough to be named and yeah. made clear so that it had to be kind of hidden Yeah. Um, and you know I, I think partly from writing historical fiction and writing fiction that's based on real events you get pushed into a sense of place you know I mean I was writing in The Pretender for example about you know Berlin in the you know First World War and well you have to have them living in streets in Berlin I had to find out were those streets still there and and all of that and you know by the time I got to Prosperity Drive I thought you know actually I, I see the experience maybe this is the thing I see the experience of living and coming from Prosperity Drive as being authentic Mm. Whereas when I started off, I wanted to run a million miles from it. And I think also I wanted to get away from the place that I grew up and, you know, yeah. and I just thought nothing happens here, mm. you know, so I have to write about something else. Yeah. And of course, you know, now I see, you know, the whole world was there, you know, all these stories happening. Yeah. I just was too, Um, I don't know, you know. Well, I think foolish we, to see it, recognize it. But, you well, know. you're
0: you're being hard on yourself. I think we're all young, and think that the grass is greener mm, somewhere else, mm. and 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 it does take us a while to kind of mm. see the value of mm. you know what's immediately around us. Um, but you're making me wonder about sort of, you know that sense of the local, and uh, there was a a, a a recent discussion of a comment that. Um, Sally Rooney, who who has just published her first novel to, to great acclaim mm-hmm. about um, Irish literary history being, you know, very much um, dominated by a particular class, you know, not necessarily European, very sort of, you know, that kind of parochiality. Um, but that it's beginning to change. Have you been sort of conscious of that kind of a shift, of a sort of a dilution of the Irish, I suppose, or, you know, it's not just middle-class writing anymore, or you know, that kind of a shift?
2: Well, I mean, I don't know that... um, I don't know really if If it has changed, I mean, I think there have always been writers. You look at a writer like Don Banville, who is essentially, is a European writer. You know, he isn't defined by his Irishness. Um, But then, on the other hand, you look at a writer like Donal Ryan, who Mm. is a very Irish Mm -hmm. writer and is concerned with rural, (coughs) the rural experience. Um, or you look at a writer like John McGahern, also completely taken up with the rural Irish experience. Um, I, I actually, I mean, I, I don't see that it's a thing that we have to be moving away from mm, in mm. order to yeah. be seen to be progressive. Mm. You know, and I suppose what I'm describing to you about my journey is, is probably going the the opposite way and maybe that's because mm. I'm older and yeah. wiser and you, but you know um, I'm not sure that I, I think there's room to be a European writer and an Irish writer and to write about Ireland yeah. um, without feeling that you have to give up one or be seen as kind of regressive because yeah. you're you're into the local Yeah.
0: Yeah, um, and and uh, there was a sort of a, a related thing that, and it's it's some time ago now. I think it was two thousand and ten when he originally said it, and it caused a bit of a, a spat. Uh, Julian Goff was commenting on, on how history obsessed the Irish are,
1: Irish writers are mm. in,
0: in in particular. What's your take, Tanya? Is uh, you know
1: are uh, we again like Mary, I find it a difficult um, question to answer, as in I I'm not necessarily sure that the the writers. Of today are obsessed with history because, as Mary says, yes, you've got a lot of people who are writing about small town Ireland and you know what life is like in the Midlands and that sort of thing, but it's not historical. Um, again, Mary mentioned Donal Ryan, you know, um, like people like Donal Ryan or Conor O'Callaghan, you know, they're they're mm. updating the rural story. Mm. They're talking mm. about, you know, ghost estates yeah. in the yes. Midlands They're you mm. know, so they're updating the rural story. Mm. And I don't think because it's rural that it's necessarily old fashioned or I mean, yeah, Dublin's the capital. Mm. Most of Ireland is rural, you know, mm. so you can't get away from that. Um, I mean, I'm from Dublin. So what I write is urban. But does it make it more modern than, mm. than what's written elsewhere? I don't think so, really. Mm. You know, and I think
2: it comes down to in the end. I'm I'm a bit wary of people being didactic about this sort of thing. You write what you write. Mm. You know, or you could only write what you write. Yeah. And you know, um, I, I'm just wary of you know. This is this is you know one my contribution to the world of writing this is what I write about you know if you're not interested in that or if you think it's too middle class or too historical you know read something else yes. mm, yeah uh, but I think you know to to say oh this is just it's all backward-looking or it's mm. all middle-class or it's all predictable you know f- first of all uh, I think you know it presupposes that the person who's making the criticism is none of these things you know Um and i mean
1: mm. it's yeah. realism and yeah. and isn't that what literary fiction is really yeah. you know it's it's realistic it's reflecting life mm-hmm. yeah well but i think it's a good
0: time to maybe try and hear some um mm. literary fiction um so both of you have brought something mm-hmm. to read yeah. so maybe Tanya can we
1: ask you okay please? yeah sure um so i'll just read um the beginning of one of the short stories, Um, it's called The Prodigal. This was shortlisted for the Francis McManus Awards um, two years ago. So I'll just read a short extract. My brother has come home after an absence of seven years. His tall, thin frame hovers in the doorway, an unlit cigarette dangling between his tobacco stained fingers as his eyes flick about the room and focus on nothing in particular. I can't help but wonder if he's noticed the absence of ceremony that accompanies his return. There are no colourful balloons strung from the balustrade, no welcome home banner brushes the top of Christian's head as he enters our living room. Instead, his return is met with anxious glances and two bright smiles. My voice is an octave too loud and betrays that this is not the kind of reunion that I desire. Christian's been clutching that cigarette since he got into the car. Reason tells me that he's dying to light it, but that he's too polite or preoccupied to ask. As he enters the room, I find myself babbling about the new decking that we got earlier in the summer. I swing open the back door, forgetting about Jess, our five-month-old collie, who flies at the newcomer before he's even got through the door. Christian puts the cigarette in his mouth and stoops to fondle the dog's ears, relieved perhaps by the first genuine greeting he's received all day. And I remember that my brother has always loved dogs, and that each dog we've ever had has sworn its allegiance to him. I look at Jess now, feeling slightly betrayed, and question her judgment of character. I don't suppose you've a light? The cigarette jigs up and down as Christian speaks. Matter of fact, I do, I say. Barry's a chain-smoker. I return to the kitchen and stand on the first rung of a stool to retrieve a lighter from the top shelf of the cupboard, where we keep it out of Emily's reach. I've learned over the years what not to leave around a small child. When I get down from the stool, I linger in the kitchen and watch as my brother picks up a stone and with a deft movement of the wrist sends it hurtling down the garden. Jess barks and bounds after it, skidding to a halt by the gazebo. She looks back and pants happily at her new friend, her mouth open in what looks like a wide grin. I toss Christian the lighter and tell him that I'll show him his room when he's ready. I stand behind my brother for a few minutes, but he doesn't say anything and I go back inside to start the evening meal, leaving him leaning over the decking, puffing on his cigarette with the dog prostrate at his feet. The light is faded by the time Christian comes in, I'm at the sink, peeling and chopping vegetables, and I don't hear him come up behind me. When I turn and see him standing close by, I give a start and then laugh to try to conceal my all too real anxiety. I didn't hear you come in, I say. Christian ignores my uneasiness and asks if he can help with something. I wipe my hands on the tea towel, smile broadly and tell him that everything's under control. He stands close to me, and I get the faint smell of perspiration rising from beneath his tin, cotton shirt. Come on, I'll show you where you're sleeping. I give him a wide berth as I pass, and he follows me like the collie to the bottom of the stairs. In Emily's room I reach for the light. Christian looks around. I see him take in the Doll's House, the army of stuffed toys, button eyes glowing in the harsh electric light, and Emily's Hannah Montana posters pinned to the wall. He puts his bag at the end of the bed and runs a hand over the soft pink quilt. I hope you don't mind sleeping in Emily's room, I say. We'd nowhere else to put you. Christian shakes his head. And what about Emily, he asks. She'll sleep in with us. God knows she does it most nights anyway. I tell him about my daughter's fear of the dark and he says that she must take after her mother, reminding me that I was always afraid of the monsters that lurked beneath the bed. He pats the quilt, sits unmoving and waits for me to leave. I tell him that I'll leave him to settle in, but in the doorway I pause and turn. Christian, I am sorry about Helen, I say. He nods, and his eyes look glassy. Well done. Mm. Well done.
0: Mm. And Mary, Mm. you? you
2: Um, This is from a story called Miss Ireland. It's historical. The maid stuck her head in the gas oven one Sunday afternoon in the Devoy house, 27 Prosperity Drive, but not before she had fed and changed the baby, Fergal it was, and put him down for his nap. The family was out visiting Nana Devoy, as they always did after Second Mass, and the maid had timed it, or so Betty Fortune had heard, so the deed would be done before they got back, and before Fergal woke again. She had put soaking towels in the gap between the kitchen door and the floor so that the fumes would not escape into the rest of the house, and left a scrawled note pinned to the kitchen door saying, Danger! Keep out! There was a deadly precision to the arrangement, A precision Irene Devoy had never noticed in the girl before, though she didn't voice this, not wanting to speak ill of the dead. She wanted everything about the terrible scandal that had been visited upon her household to be proper, because what Irene felt deep in her heart about the suicide of the maid was selfish relief. Liam had suggested the maid. She can deal with the baby, the night feeds and help out with the chores, etc, etc, Liam had said. Etc was a phrase he used a lot and it covered a multitude. But Irene couldn't complain. Liam was a good provider. With a new baby in the house, he was worried about Irene losing her beauty sleep, as he called it. That was why Quinny was hired in the first place. Of course, she wasn't Quinny when she came. She was Marguerite Quinn, recommended by a colleague of Liam's in public works. She was a country girl, as all these maids were, and on first sight, Irene's heart took a dive. She expected someone mousy and cowed, but Quinny was a big girl, big boned that is, with breasts and curves sheathed in a black Brine Island polo, a skirt and hound's tooth. Check, in hands to check tight around the beam end and black stockings with Irene noticed a ladder stopped above the knee with nail polish she wore kitten heels, she had long auburn hair long enough to sit on which delighted the boys and brown eyes large and placid and she had a beauty spot pasted high in her pale cheekbone the only way in which she satisfied Irene's expectations was in her accent Flash and tinkerish she called Irene Mrs. Where have you been working before this Irene asked her worked for a lord in the county mead Mrs in a castle with a moat and all but I was let go oh Irene felt a tiny tremor of alarm she waited for an explanation but the girl offered none Well, we don't have a castle here, Irene said, laughing nervously as she showed Quinny the box room in the back that they'd cleared for her and the baby. With the cot in there, it looked pokey, and the sun went in just at that moment, so it took on a dingy air. Irene was about to apologise. Then she thought better of it. This was a maid, for God's sake. Now, come and meet the boys. Brilliant. Well done.
0: So what are you both working on? Tanya,
2: you've
1: got yeah. one due April. I'm, I'm next working year? on a crime novel. April,
0: another <laughs> this, one is a killer reads. This time reads. I am
1: working on a crime novel. Yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the first time it was unintentional. This time it is intentional. Um, so yeah, it's it's coming out of Killer Reads with Harper Collins again. Um, so that'll be out April or May next year so you have to have the manuscript done i have by... to have the first draft done by the end of november so i'm almost done actually Gosh, that's well, a
0: quick turnaround from first draft to actually
1: um it, it is and it's not because i'd actually begun this novel uh, before the girl behind the lens was published okay. and then i went i decided to leave it yeah. and go back and do more work on the girl behind the lens mm-hmm. so it's, it was something then that i was returning to okay. you know yeah
2: and mary what are you on i'm about halfway through uh A first draft of a novel, um, which is going rather more slowly than it should be. Um, Partly, I think, because having gone back to the short story, I'm still dabbling doing what what um Tanya doesn't do and probably <laughs> I shouldn't do, that I keep on thinking, Oh I'll just do one I have two or three ideas here, you know, and yeah. of course you, you get know with ideas. Well they to be don't... honest,
1: I, I did write a few short stories before I went back to oh, the oh, second yeah. novel. Yeah, so, yeah but like <laughs> the
2: ideas don't go away, but you know, yeah. it's just I, I was itching to do them. So, mm, mm. Um, but I think it is actually better, as you say, I'm a bit like stick that to stick it, with yeah. one because, you know, particularly, I think, with a novel that you really need to be steeped in the world of it. Yeah. yeah. And if you're sort of flitting out to do short fiction, you mm. know, it's does, harder.
0: Does the academic year get in the way as well? I mean, do you find that Abandon All Hope?
2: Um, October l- to June, mm, a little bit, yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's not so much time. I think it's kind of head Headspace. space that and 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 I think particularly too with a novel that you sort of need a run of time at yeah. it, and you know it's much easier to write short fiction in short bursts. You know, you can fit it in around <laughs> yeah. other things. Yeah. You know, yeah. but the novel requires the you know the head down commitment. I think. Yeah. You know. mm.
0: Well, we're looking forward, whenever it appears, to to reading it. And thank you both very much for coming and talking to us. Delight, delightful conversation about fiction with Tanya Farrelly and Mary Morrissey. Um, So thank you for watching. We will be back next month with possibly something specially seasonal. We shall see. But thanks again, Mary and Tanya, for talking to us. And thank you for watching. Yes, I know I'm just a dreamer, I dream Cause it's the closest I'll ever get to you